0: Kia ora tato. Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Neil Atkinson. I'm Chief Historian here at Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. For those who don't know me, um, I'm delighted to welcome everyone here today for our seminar. This is our, the eighth of our uh, monthly seminars this year. And uh, particularly pleased to, to uh, introduce Ron Crosby. Um, Ron, Ron has spent most of his working life as a court lawyer, um, mainly in Blenheim, where he, where he still lives. He retired in 2007 to concentrate on, on writing. Um, and he's written a number of books, uh, including Musket Wars back in uh, 1999, a biography of Gilbert Mair, uh, History of the New Zealand SAS, and most recently this book, Kūpapa, which uh, the Ministry was uh, pleased to support with uh, through the New Zealand History Research Trust Fund Awards in History a few years back now, and also through a, a publishing grant as well. Um, so in this work, Ron uh, is, is exploring the, the important and often controversial story of Māori who aligned themselves with the Crown or were neutral during the New Zealand wars and the various reasons behind those decisions and the significant legacy uh, left by the, by those events. Um, and just to tell you one example um, of that that is, is of particular relevance to, to a lot of the work that this ministry is involved in at the moment. Uh, the the allegiances and decisions uh, made by by, by Māori in the 19th century had a major impact on recruitment and participation in um, both the First World War and the Second World War. Um, and as, as Ron notes in the book, uh, the <coughs> word kūpāpā itself has come to be as hotly contested as the history that, that uh, lies behind it. So Ron's going to talk for about 45-ish minutes, and then we'll have time for questions. Thank you very much, Neil. And, uh, I'd just like to start by
1: formally acknowledging the uh, Ministry's support for, for a struggling author. I think everybody tends to think a lawyer uh, is pretty well placed to be able to write books without discomfort, but if you spoke to my wife, you'd find that that's not the position. And <laughs> writing history in New Zealand, unfortunately, because we've got such a small population, means that um, if it wasn't for the support of the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, a number of these major... Um, Uh, efforts just would not be possible and so thank you very much Neil and and your team. Uh, So the subject matter uh, has been introduced by Neil. And uh, the only difference I would make is that he introduced it as being the bitter legacy of Maori allegiances with the crown, and it's actually alliances as is the word I used, and there's quite a significance to that because allegiance just takes you that little step further towards a concept of loyalty, uh, which my book argues uh, was not what was behind the alliances that uh, Maori formed with, with the crown. Uh, so just to start off with triggers for the book, in, in the 1990s, the dictionary meaning of kūpapa definitely changed 180 degrees. Uh, Historically, if you looked at uh, Williams dictionaries, the authoritative, which was really the authoritative dictionary for uh, the Māori language for about 150 odd years, uh, it was always defined, or the term kūpapa was defined as uh, uh, in the sense of neutral, or in brackets, loyal to the crown during the uh, wars, whereas in 1993 or thereabouts, I forget the year exactly, um, Reeds published the P.A. Ryan dictionary which is very commonly used nowadays uh, and if you look at Kupapa in that dictionary, one word, traitor. And so the uh, meaning change to me uh, highlights a sensitive divide in Maori. and I've just posed the questions at the bottom, how did that occur? And the important thing that happened really through the period after the Second World War was that the value to Māori of past alignment with the Crown changed You can certainly say that up until the end of the Second War, uh, the leadership in uh, Māori were commonly espousing the importance of, and the Māori Battalion was the classic example of it, uh, the importance of uh, proving to Pākehā that that Māori should be treated, as the treaty guaranteed, though, going to be treated as equal subjects. uh, And that value of an alignment with the Crown Uh, started to change very dramatically in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And one possible cause that I've identified in the book, and it may or may not be uh, agreed to by others is that uh, the treaty claims process itself uh, possibly contributed to that as well. And the reason for me saying that is that there is no value in the treaty claims process and in the settlement process uh, in espousing a previous alignment on the Crown side. That gets you nothing. The value lies in proof of treaty breach by the Crown and in prejudice to a Māori victim. And the Crown, of course, uh, perforce becomes the villain of any treaty uh, breach, and the corollary of that becomes that Māori aligned with that villain uh, become traitors. And uh, uh, so I've just posed the question at the end of this slide of how valid is that outcome, and that takes you back to really the start of why Māori aligned with the Crown, and the conclusion that I've reached and have have uh, advanced in the book is that the primary aim is to maintain, w- was always, to maintain mana, to exercise Tino rangatiratanga as a customary revered right. And of course, as soon as you say that, you realise the irony is that both kūpapa and their opponents uh, shared that aim. So both were seeking the same thing, uh, to maintain their Tino rangatiratanga, And the difference was that allied Māori, Um, allied with the Crown, saw a protective value in the guarantee of that right that was contained in the Treaty of Waitangi. And the perceived advantages uh, of the Treaty for those Māori who took that view uh, were that the protection of the Crown uh, and that protection you'll recall was a guarantee of equality as British subjects uh, and it was a protection perceived as being a protection against past practices and it's commonly overlooked and forgotten that uh, the treaty was signed at the end of a 35-year period of intensive musket wars, uh, where, in essence, there was no controlling authority. Kaha, the might of the first the might of the uh, musket, in reality, was what dominated uh, in New Zealand politics for the previous 35 years. And all of those who had, in the earlier period, uh, had superiority, had it because they had the musket first, and they knew that at some stage or other, there'd be some retribution coming. Uh, and in my view, uh, that importance of that crown protection uh, that Tomate Wakanani and the like saw yeah. up in the north uh, was vital to, to uh, try and secure. In other words, it provided peace and good order. Uh, and it came with this uh, acknowledgement and a written guarantee of Tino Rangatiratanga. So what was going to change? What was going to change was that you were going to have some protection of good order and peace but you were going to be able to carry on your chiefly authority without any limitation, tinor the utmost rangatiratanga. Uh, so those concepts also had the attraction, uh, and again, it's commonly over- overlooked now because religion doesn't have the same uh, force that it had in those days. But it was in those days it was associated with the benefits of the Christian religion, which had swept through uh, Māori uh, and its messages of peace, and that linkage of church and religion and and the message of peace in my view was very important in more practical terms which we as the modern uh, 20th century 21st century people tend to think is most important trade advantages uh, were important uh, but they were just one of uh, those other very important factors but they were important and all of that was against that background of the written guarantees uh, and those written guarantees being to all Māori Ka ka whakai, uh, te tino rangatiratanga, uh, or rato or rato or rato tangata. So it, the queen was guaranteeing and confirming uh, te tino rangatiratanga, the utmost chiefly authority over their lands, their kaianga, and everything that uh, they possessed of value to them. So where was the downside in agreeing to that? So the were prominent Ngāpūi examples uh, who exercised their rangatira differently though and quite obviously within a few years people like Poneheke on the, uh with his wife uh, on the left and Kawati on the right in the left hand picture and Tamati Wakaneni took the opposing views with Honaheke and Kawati uh, rejecting the treaty essentially and Tamati Wakaneni leading a very strong consortium of rangatira particularly from the western areas of Ngāpūi uh, country in aligning themselves alongside the crown. So just looking at the New Zealand wars, because unfortunately one of the tragedies I believe in New Zealand is that we don't teach our own history, we teach in in the schools, Uh, uh, we're still teaching Tudor history, and that's good, all history is good, but we should be as a priority teaching New Zealand history and the Māori history and uh, particularly the relationships between Māori and Pākehā should be absolutely at the utmost and it's you common for me to hear teachers saying oh but it's so complicated and difficult to understand but if we could only have some resources that breaks it break it down I- into simple phases and so what the book does and uh, and it must have appealed to the book designer because they uh, they put uh, black separating pages for the four parts and they uh, designed it really well and uh, that's their idea not mine but there were four distinct phrases phases where this uh, idea of alliance with the crown arose. First phase was up north uh, particularly, or started up north in 1845 but also down here uh, in Hiratanga in the uh, hut and Horafinua and also up at Whanganui in 1847. Second phase started a few years later, about seven years later and I've identified that as starting in 1854 and if you wonder why that's so, there's two reasons particularly. First is that um, that's when uh, the land, the fighting over land first broke out in uh, North Taranaki uh, when um, uh, Katatori killed uh, Rawiri, Rawiri, and. Uh, but also at the same time in South Taranaki it was when Tamihana uh, um, Te uh, and and others had called the first major hui and there was a major whare nui built for it uh, at Tai at uh, Manamapau in South Taranaki where the first commitment was reached that no more land was to be sold to the Pākehā, And from 1854 you can see there's a definite phase of the Crown struggling with this resistance to Māori land uh, being sold uh, to enable the settlements to advance (coughs) and they started to use a very heavy the Governor started to use a very heavy hand from 1860 on uh, so that the alliances really in the first two phases were with the Governor uh, but alongside uh, the settler govern governments from 1864 to 1868, uh, which was essentially the Pai Mariri uh, and trying to cope with that, which swept through uh, the North Island. And uh, the fourth phase was really, if you like, the two prophets, or uh, well, the two two charismatic leaders, not necessarily prophets, but Titokawaru uh, and Tākutī. So four simple phases, which we'll move on to uh, very briefly, but. There were some very strong early uh, Crown supporters among the Māori. Wira I've identified, uh, Tauwe Utai was his name, he took his Christian name of Wira but uh, he was picked up, for example, by um, Donald MacLean, and Donald MacLean in 1854 was when the first outbreak of fighting occurred, and Rauwari was killed with about uh, nine or ten others, I think, from memory, and uh, he went down uh, by ship to North Taranaki, to report to the governor, or the acting governor at the time, I think. and uh, But he's importantly called at Kafir and picked this chap up because he was a very senior rangatira for uh, Tainui and all of their uh, musket war raids and, and had been involved actually in the expulsion of Taropraha from Kafir uh, way back in about 1820 or thereabouts. And he was also. Involved in uh, some of the major sieges, Puketangihora, for example, in North Taranaki in 1832. So he was, and he he'd been one of the leading Tainui who'd been involved in the um, really the terrorising and the later musket wars of North Taranaki, and particularly, and also through into South Taranaki. So McLean knew, and it was the, the you know the sort of the callous way that, or, or the calculated way that the Crown agents uh, worked. He knew if he picked him up and took him down to uh, Waitara and had him (coughs) threaten the locals, uh, if they were going to be fighting about land sales, that Tainui might be interested. Uh, He knew that that would carry a hell of a lot of weight. So very significant Maori leader at the time and remained a very strong Crown supporter right through even after uh, a lot of other Maori leaders became very (coughs) concerned about the way the Crown was uh, playing the bully boy in 1860 and, and using its forces to achieve that. On the right-hand side was a man who remained loyal uh, and when I say loyal, he he was very loyal to the Crown but he certainly was allied with the Crown at uh, Whanganui uh, and uh, remained so. Te everybody probably knows, initially fought beside the settler government troops in 1865 that's one of the reasons he felt so embittered was because he was uh, seized and quite improperly really uh, imprisoned with his followers, uh, never tried Held on the uh, on Farukori on the Chatham Islands for three years, uh, grabbed a vessel, uh, and uh, at that stage uh, escaped back, intending, I suspect, to be uh, to just peacefully disperse. But they were attacked by the settler government troops, and he changed sides and uh, embarked on his four-year uh, endeavours throughout the North Island. There were other men who went the other way, uh, an early Crown opponent and a very fiercely. Uh, a very fierce opponent of the crown, fought against them uh, in the Whanganui, was uh, Tōpia uh, Turo, and he later changed because of some of the actions of Tukoti. Tukoti was really his own worst enemy and uh, attacked a number of Māori without really, I think, thinking through the consequences of what he was doing. And because of those, some of those actions which affected uh, Turo's uh, relatives, he changed his allegiances and became a major leader alongside um, Kept at to uh, Rangihiwanui in, uh, in about 1870, when they uh, uh, went up the Whanganui River right through the volcanic plateau out to Opuriki, were involved in the attacks on um, or at uh, and uh and back home to the Whanganui. So, we're uh, a major figure in, in the later part of the war alongside the Crown. So, phase one, uh, I'd mentioned 1845 to 1847, I've used the title on this slide of Crown Pragmatism uh, because in reality the Crown didn't have enough forces to achieve what they were seeking out, uh, setting out to achieve and Allied Maori support was critical to them in all three of those localities and the outcomes, if you look, stand back and look at them, were unofficial truces really uh, simply because there, there were not sufficient Crown forces. Had it not been for the Allied Maori support, um, there would not have been the ability for the Crown to have gained the position that it did gain. Uh, I've just used that uh, illustration of the effect uh, of um, of art on our historic uh, perception. Uh, That's a a scene of Pukatutu up north, although you'll see the title to it is or or kaiho, but that's that's uh, just an error by the artist. Uh, That's Lake Omapuri on the on the right hand side. Um, But the allied Māori there were the ones who enabled the British soldiers when they'd been cut down as they stupidly attempted to attack a fully defended par, defended by blokes who had spent decades fighting in the musket wars and were very experienced with muskets. And the Maori realised that, weren't stupid enough to be involved in the the attack, uh, but then provided covering fire as the Brits went forward, picked up their soldiers and... And uh, Cyprian Bridge, the major who was in his first action at Pukatutu there, uh, wrote about the fact in his diary that uh, the friendly natives, as we retired, taking up the firing and protecting our rear and flanks. And yet that just gets overlooked in many modern histories. It's painted painted as being a British attack on the Maori. Uh, But you can see the uh, Maori fellows over here on the left-hand side. And they're completely disinterested in in what was a suicidal uh, frontal attack on, on this part. Horakiri, a little bit closer here to Wellington, uh, the battle, at, uh, battle Hill. That's a very common image that we see all the time, uh, and it, and it's dominated by a Pākehā presence attacking Teranga Hayatha's defended <coughs> positions at the top of Battle Hill. Uh, there's one Māori fellow here. There might be, but they're uh, so indistinct you would be unable to see them firing on the entrenchments. Uh, but the rest of it looks like. Crown versus Maori. The reality was that these chaps stayed there for a couple of days. It was raining like mad. They went back down to the bottom of the hill, and the people who stayed up the top were a mixture of hapu of Ngati Toa and Awa, and it was they who, over the ensuing two to three weeks, in very harsh conditions, uh, followed running hard as people up in, until they ran out of food and until they dispersed and ended up going up just north of uh, Lake Hauranui. But again, we have this perception of the battles being in that period, phase one being Crown versus Māori, and the reality was it was actually Māori on Māori in terms of the real fighting and in terms of the real success when you actually analyse it. Phase two was uh, the development, saw the development of the Kinitanga, that meeting, that uh, anti-land selling meeting that I mentioned in South Taranaki earlier, was for a dual purpose really, or the primary purpose really was of it was to uh, trying to appoint a Māori king, and of course that led to the Crown reaction of uh, the impact on Crown sovereign, sovereignty and uh, the Crown did a couple of things that were really quite terrible at the time. Uh, they were involved in trying to achieve a lot of land purchases in the period 1854 to 1859. They knew that it was causing outbreaks of fighting between hapū with serious casualties, and the fighting particularly in North Tararaki went on for years and they could actually hear it from New Plymouth and the reaction was that uh, the Crown uh, under its governorship uh, obligations under the treaty should have been ensuring that uh, there was a protection there and a protection for all British subjects including Māori fighting amongst themselves uh, but it ignored that treaty duty and stood off. Crown forces were sent but not to intervene in the fighting or bring any end to the fighting between the Māori, they were sent simply to protect the settlers and yet at the same time, uh, particularly as it got closer to 1860, the uh, uh, governors were garnering troops in as large a numbers as they could because they would made the decision by that stage that this uh, Māori King concept had to be crushed and they had to invade uh, Waikato and and North Taranaki. Uh, So for five years they stood by and took no steps in North Taranaki to stop fighting between Māori the broke, fighting broke out at, at Napier as well, and again, they did the same thing, sent troops to garrison Napier, uh, but not to uh, carry out their obligations under the treaty. And Gray actually termed the invasion in 1860 as uh, a war between the races, uh, and he used that phraseology. Uh, he, Because of the strength that he garnered of British troops by that stage, imperial troops, he felt strong enough to invade. Um, the Waikato in 1863 uh, as you know, followed in 1864 by Tairanga. Previously um, his predecessor, Gore Brown had in, invaded North Taranaki in 1861. Uh, massive crown forces were utilised uh, uh, ballots ballot is estimated at, uh, up to about 10,000 at times and the crunch was that the, the grey felt that there was no need to utilise allied Maori uh, but Maori support nonetheless was sought by the uh, uh, governors, Gore Brown in particular at the start, and th- but the Allied Māori involvement in that phase two really for those military reasons was limited to the logistical supply train and by that I mean in particular uh, in the lower uh, Waikato, the vessels were coming in but needed, the supplies needed to get up the Waikato and it was those lower hapu of uh, Tainui who were actually providing that supply train um, by canoe and uh, getting the supplies up the river to where the the major river vessels were able to operate. They provided some level of intelligence, it was limited. Uh, They provided some local guiding. The most important uh, provision that they provided, in particular in 1860 for Gore Brown when he um, was launching his attacks in North Taranaki, was that they provided a political support. And what happened was that Gore Brown and McLean uh, it came up with the brilliant concept of calling a conference, which has been called the uh, Koimarama Conference, held at Koimarama Beach. That's the Melanesian uh, Mission Station buildings at the time in 1860, yeah. uh, and uh, they transported a large number of Rangatira to Koyamarama and they, it's, it's in a, a number of uh, historical writings that you'll see nowadays. It tends to be dismissed. Uh, as being uh, a Crown-organized thing, but the characters and the Rangatira who went there w- were not lackeys of the Crown. They were strong-minded individuals. They'd, uh, they'd, a lot of them had fought in the Musket Wars. They, they were very powerful individual entities, and they basically supported the Crown. And uh, a lot of the writings nowadays tend to say, oh yeah, but it was a majority vote. Well, look, well, all votes tend to be majority, but uh, these people supported the Crown and unfortunately I thought that might happen. I thought I'd just mention some of them, but um, it's quite small, which isn't going to make it easy easy for you to read at all. But essentially uh, what, was, what occurred was that the uh, iwi or hapu and rangatira who were at the conference were listed according to areas uh, and in the records and uh, so you have Tararoa, for example, uh, way up north, happens to be my wife's uh, iwi, but uh, Norpera, who was uh, a well known, uh, very strong minded character from uh, up north, Tamati Wakanani, uh, just to take some of them. Uh, interesting names uh, when you get down to Ngapui, uh, Widamu Kawati and Maihi Kawati, who were related to Kawati, who actually fought against the crown, were here at 1860. Uh, and on and on it goes. It would take me too long uh, if I start talking about each of them I'll, I'll get engaged in the musket wars. But, it, but it, in essence, these were very strong-minded characters. Well, if I point out one, because you're going to see an image of it, uh, from uh, Te Arawa, uh, Tohi to Uruangi, a uh, very strong character in, in the musket wars period and was actually killed fighting along, in alignment with the Crown. Uh, on uh, Kaikoura Beach which is just to the east of uh, 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 Makatu. And uh, it, it, it is a rain, really what I wanted to demonstrate, and if I just use the titles probably of the areas, Northland, uh, North and South Auckland, Coramendal and Tauranga, Rotorua, Makatu and Low Lower Waikato. well I should mention those, Ngāti Te uh Ngāti Tahinga and Nati Mahanga, and that is a surprise to a lot of people, because a lot of people don't realise that the Lower River Hapu were very strongly uh, supportive of the Crown, and that's often overlooked. Everybody tends to think nowadays that Tainui were against the Crown, and all Tainui were and all Tainui were for the King. Well, that's not the reality, that's not the reality of what happened on the ground. Uh, Taranaki and uh, Whanganui, and again, you might have expected that there wouldn't be much representation, there's even Ngā there. Um, and you will see other upper Whanganui, um, which again is su- surprising because that, they, they had resisted the crown earlier on. Uh, the east coast, including Hawke's Bay um, and Wairarapa, Manawatu, Horowhenua, uh down to Wellington and Totoehu, uh, and there's a list of various iwi, including Ngati Toa uh, and Tamihana Taropraha, is there, uh, as, as is Martini Tafiti. And that's interesting because they were the two of the chaps who called the 1854 uh, hui uh, held in South Taranaki. And the, even from the South Island, Naito and uh, Tairo who was uh, a major rangatira in the um, Musket Wars era. But it wasn't it wasn't all, the, as I say, there were majority votes for the resolutions, but the resolutions were supportive of the Crown in 1860, but not all Māori were uh, rangatira were happy about it. Not all attended, obviously, the hui. And, uh, many refused to go. Uh, Many allied Māori didn't necessarily change from that alliance uh, with their view of the treaty, but they did express serious disquiet about the changed Crown land purchase practices. By that stage, McLean was starting to do major transactions with one rangatira, Te Haupuku, for example, in Hawke's Bay. Uh, He changed from dealing with... uh, land sales on a hapu basis to land sales on an individualised basis. Uh, the invasions that occurred of Taranaki and Waikato um, and it, the, there was a commencement of uh, confiscation policies following on. Uh, so that, that caused a lot of allied Maori disquiet. And this chap Renato Kawapo, very strong Ngati Kahuninu uh, rangatira. You'll notice Lindau's painting of him, he has no right eye that was because in the Battle of Teporiri the woman uh, whose husband he'd just shot, leapt on his back, gouged out his right eye, and was in the process of gouging out his left eye when his mates pull her, pull her off. And he, he married her, which was quite a <laughs> nice uh, <laughs> end. Yeah. But he's, he was a an outstanding um, correspondent and, and an outstanding rangatira, and very strongly in favour of the treaty guarantees. But he, at the time... Uh, of Taranaki, North Taranaki here he is writing saying the governor's way of flying is to flap with one wing downwards and the other up. He tells the Maori to sit quietly with the wing that flaps downwards whilst he beckons to the white man with the wing working upwards to come and exterminate the Maori. Pretty strong words from someone who's allied with you and still maintained later on. For example Renata Kawapo was involved in the fighting against Dukorti. Uh Phase three was just when the Crown thought everything was under control, they'd invaded in their minds successfully the, the Waikato. They uh, same at Taranaki after the initial hiccup at Gapea. Uh, North Taranaki, they they felt they were in control, and then and and the imperial forces. There was a real set of pressure for the imperial forces to be sent away because of their cost. They uh, the, the imperial government wanted them away. Uh, because the imperial government was starting to view what it was occurring as just being warfare to a- achieve Pākehā settlement in, in uh, New Zealand uh, so that everything coincided with the uh, imperial troops disappearing when suddenly throughout the North Island uh, there was just a, a whole s- sweeping motion of uh, primarily the ho-ho religion, uh, sweeping through the country uh, and in essence replacing uh what, what had been the, the Kingitanga resistance to uh, the settler government's uh, acquisition of Māori land. And it led to extensive fighting in the central of North Island. And many Māori aligned with the governor and the uh, settler government. And Māori on Māori engagements predominate during this period from 1864 to 1868, simply because the imperial troops had gone, or those who had left were told that they weren't to be involved in any fighting. They were just to protect the settlements. Uh, and the settlers didn't have the requisite uh, forces to be able to cope with, uh, and the government didn't have the forces to be able to cope with the outbreak outbreaks of fighting that occurred. And the primary reasons for alignment with the government, I, I've espoused in the book, were, again, uh, one new, again, maintenance of Rangatiratanga against threat, but a new feature, and that was the protection of their own religious beliefs. And particularly if you look at the East Coast a good example of that, where... A lot of East Coast um, Ngāti Pero had been taken by um, Ngāpūi back up to uh, the Bay of Islands and had spent decades there with the uh, with the missionaries, had become imbued with Christianity, brought Christianity back and there was a very strong uh, Ngāti um priesthood, r- large numbers of them and uh, uh, Christianity had a very strong hold there and it was very successful and, and the The community as such was uh, functioning very well. They were starting to trade a lot with Auckland and the like, and suddenly in came this new primary religion. And it led to a huge reaction by a number of the hapu. Some of the hapu in Ngātipurō took it on board, others rebelled very strongly against it, and fighting broke out in a major way. So the East Coast is a good example of that protection of religious beliefs being a reason for aligning with the Crown those who aligned with the crowns immediately turned to the crown and said, give us the weapons, give us the ammunition, we, we can uh, beat these blokes. So, the, uh, but there was, as the battles against the primary went on and as the settler government uh, had greater control, whenever they were in that dominating position that they'd achieved in, Wai- in North Taranaki, Waikato, Tauranga and in the East Coast, the demand was there confiscate these rebels, the land from these rebels. And the confiscation became a serious problem because as the lower Waikato-Hapu had found to their cost, they'd supported the crown there with, uh, in logistical terms only to find that their land was confiscated because they were part of this Tainui uh, group who were regarded as rebels. And the same thing happened on the east coast. Ngāti Parau found that the government intended to confiscate their land. And Ropata Wahawa, for example, and Ngāti Parau took the attitude that the best way of avoiding a risk of conf- confiscation was to continue fighting on the Crown side and uh, that's a big explanation in my view as to why he was so active against Te in the next four years. But it, I said, I've said that the battles were largely predominantly Māori on Māori, particularly in the initial stages. motor Island and in um, Whang- the Whanganui in 1864 saw a very ritualised, um, arranged battle between uh, the uh, Paimuriri who were coming down the river and the lower river ones who went <coughs> up and, and met at the island and the upper river ones nearly nearly won, they had almost forced the others to retreat when uh, through the bravery of a couple of the lower river rangatira the tide was turned and uh, the upper river ones suffered very badly. Uh, on the left hand side he wasn't actually a fighting rangatira but I'll, I'll just put the f- image in there because he was uh, ua and there was the Paimuriri prophet on the right-hand side, though, was the chap, Hoanehe uh, Pangamoa, who fought at Motua Island. Uh, he was killed a few years later in another battle against uh, uh, Paimaree, uh, again on the Whanganui River, or, or, or Tahi, I think. Other allied Māori leaders in this third phase, against Paimaree, were, I've already mentioned, and Ngāri Parau, uh, had been a slave in the, uh, himself. Uh, Rangafakata had taken him as a young child, as a slave, and uh, didn't have rangatira uh, status, freely, other than by his own courage and bravery that he demonstrated in early battles against the Whamareri, he became so uh, impressive and so dominant that he became really the leading Ngāti Paro leader. Ihaka the Ngāti Kau Nunu on the right, he was a lot older and tended to be discounted a bit by uh, the um, Crown agents, but in fact was a very influential Ngāti Kau Nunu chap. Uh, 1865 in the Bay of Plenty I've mentioned to uh, torangi the uh, Tar of a man on the left-hand side uh, who was uh, killed at the Battle of Carca Beach which occurred incidentally just a matter of days before the Battle of gate Pa and and in that battle uh, the the Māori who were aligned on the Crown side, who were Ta'arua and a party of Ngāti from uh, Topo, uh, inflicted about really heavy casualties on a, on a ma- major war party of about 900 uh, men uh, um, who'd come from Tairawhiti, from the east coast iwi. Uh, and tohi to Uru only played a major part in that. They inflicted about 50 deaths and who knows how many wounded, but on the usual sort of uh, run that uh, you'd have two to one or thereabouts, some casualties, probably uh, inflicted 150 casualties and a few days later was the Battle of Cape Ta, which we all know about and know so much about, um, where the Brits got a a bit of a hiding from, uh, and it was only Imperial troops who got a hiding from Māori uh, and inflicted about 20 odd um, deaths on Māori at that battle, but just few days before had been this major Māori encounter which is really pretty well lost to history. And it was important in another way in that he, his widow, uh, in her fury, shot one of the uh, prisoners taken, a Fokatoya prisoner who was taken uh, in Utu. She shot him for the loss of her husband. And he was an unarmed prisoner and it offended Fokatoya uh, who, who themselves had religion by that time, it was contrary to all the Christian concepts that they'd been told about, and it, it led to, when Kiriopa came uh, uh, into their area, it led to the tragedy for Fokatoya really, of uh, uh, the killing of Volkner, and um, uh, when Kiriopa uh, was part of the reason for him gaining his um, nickname of Kaipatu, of uh, the eye-eater. Uh, when he uh, was said to have consumed um, Wagner's eyes. Uh, phase four was, uh, I've said, the <coughs> engagements against uh, Titokawaru and Te uh, both very able, charismatic leaders. And the major difference, in my view, uh, and I've expanded on in the book at length a bit, is the, uh, the major difference between the two was the ruthless conduct by Te against other Māori, Turanganui, uh, 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 which is... Um, uh, Guzman, Mohaka, Fakatani, Taupo, uh, Rotorua, and Opapu, which is just to the east of uh, Poraki, uh, and the result of his actions was a wide gathering of hapu uh, to pursue him. Te on the other hand, had early successes in South Taranaki in 1868, 1869, when Ngati Ruanui were facing the disaster that uh, there was a determination to, uh, and their land had been confiscated, and there was a determination to take their land they literally had, were losing all the good land, they had nothing, nowhere to go, and it's not surprising that he uh, led uh, th- that rebellion. Uh, unfortunately, it seems the personal factors undermined his manner. He, uh, he seems to have been a bit possibly free with the wives of some of his followers, which uh, lost him uh, literally overnight support. Uh, but there was then a long extended period for quite a few months while he was pursued ruthlessly uh, by Whitmore and um, and his Kupapa allies up the south Taranaki coast and right through up into the headwaters of the Waitara River and it was only then when they got up there that the government got a bit nervous that they were getting too close to the boundary of the uh, Rohipotai, uh, the uh, king country and they better hold hold off and so Titokawaru survived because of that. But the Kupapa in the course of that campaign, uh, particularly Te Kepe Terangi Hewinui, established uh, of, uh, his own mana and uh, that became very important in the pursuit of Tukoti later. So the initial perception in my view was of a risk to Tanga for the lower Whanganui Rangatira again as uh, Titokawaru started to spread down through uh, Ngāti Renui country and down into the lower Whanganui area. Uh, there was also the mercenary factor of the Whanganui Ngāti Upper Force which was led by Te the Hiwanui. And that's where the name Kūpapa particularly gathered strength uh, because it was actually utilised commonly at that time. And for Tekepa nui himself, there's possibly a desire to ensure strength for uh, the recovery of lost Muāpōku lands. And uh, and that's possibly a very strong factor because certainly later on he used the weapons that he uh, obtained in fighting alongside the crown to advance um, the interests of Muāpōku around Lake Horofenua. So that's him on the left-hand side, uh, Te Kepa Hiwanui. Uh, and if you look at the various areas that he took his forces through South Taranaki up into the volcanic plateau, around and uh, into Apuriki and then down into the headwaters of the Waiaweka when he attacked Takoti, uh, an extraordinary uh, tough man and an extraordinary leader. Te on the right. And the pursuit of Takoti lasted for four years after he came back from Wharekauri uh, with uh, his followers. And the features, really, of that time were the amazing toughness and resilience on both sides. Uh, all of the Whanganui country, all of the Uruwera, Uru, all bushed, uh, tough terrain, uh, very rugged mountainous terrain. Uh, and the toughness of the terrain was really marked by the ruthless brutality on both sides. Initial pursuit of Takorti, uh, as I've said earlier, I suspect he was uh, um, intending to just disperse when he came back, but he got attacked the minute he landed. Uh, and, but conventional forces proved very ineffective in the initial pursuit in the Uta uh, in 1868, and uh, he was successful in rebuffing about three attacks on him. He then, in Utu, uh, attacked Turanganui, and he killed a, a number of Pākehā, killed about 30-odd Pākehā, but importantly, he killed over 40 Māori, and in very ruthless circumstances. And it had a major effect on um, Māori alignments against him, by particularly Nati Parau but by others uh, on the east coast who, who had interrelationships with those that he'd killed. And after Turanganui he, he lost over 190 of his uh, followers uh, to predominantly Māori forces at Makaretu which is just the valley just below Ngātapa and uh, he lost about 60 or 65 there and then another 120, 130 after Ngātapa fell. Ngātapa is a, a most dramatic site, an incredible place for a pa to be 2,000 foot up. Uh, uh, and, uh, and there was a terrible uh, massacre after the fall of the power, as the refugees to Korti's followers were pursued by Ngāti and Tarawa who were there, uh, dragged back to Ngātapa and killed. And uh, uh, it, it set the scene, the whole Te and uh, Ngātapa uh, retribution, they set the scene for what was a very ruthless campaign over the next three years. For the next six months after Ngātapa, uh, the conventional forces invaded the Uruwera were unsuccessful largely, they're certainly unsuccessful in ever getting in touch with uh, Te Kōti other than the odd skirmish. They had a very bad effect on Tuhoi, who uh, uh, suffered very badly from what was essentially a, uh, a, a raising of their kāinga and of their gardens in a May invasion, which meant winter was coming in the Uruwera, which is a very cold time in the Uruwera. Uh, and they'd lost their shelters, lost their food. It was a disaster for Tuhoi, but in terms of the Korte, it actually was uh, pointless and achieved little. Tapa, just to give you an example, but, uh, you can see the, the steepness of it on the right hand side, you can see the bluffs over which the Korte escaped, uh, and most importantly, really, is the most important feature of those photos is, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a green slash down there. And the green slash Is coming from a spring at about that location, and if you look, the first line of entrenchments is here. There's another line of entrenchments here and another line up here. But the spring, in other words the water supply, was outside the line of entrenchments. Once uh, Ropata Wahawaha and uh, George Priest had got up to here with their men uh, and were controlling uh, this area here, by under fire, um, it was disaster for Takuti. He had, uh, after two or three days, it became desperate for them and they had to get away. They escaped at night, down these, got away, but then faced a terrible pursuit. Uh, and the, some of the pursuers were Tarawa and the Ottawa flying columns. There were two of them. Uh, one under Gilbert Meir, George uh, Gilbert Mayor, who is this chap here? Uh, and this happens to be a photo taken the day after an extraordinary pursuit by these chaps of Tukoti, and this was after the Uruwara invasion when Tukoti had lost hardly any, if, if any, men, uh, but these blokes, in February of 1870, after a long period of uh, pursuit of Tukoti, managed to um, uh, inflict really serious casualties on them in one long running day's battle over about 40 kilometres, which may led. And they killed uh, somewhere between probably about 15 and 25 of Tukorti's men. Donald MacLeod, the Minister of Defence, who by that time had been waiting for uh, results to come in from this huge expenditure on uh, various uh, conventional forces spread through the North Island, was so delighted with the outcome that he issued an order that from then on Māori only were to be used in the pursuit of Tukorti. So, the, for the last two years of the New Zealand wars, the fighting was Māori on Māori by order of the government, by order of the claim. Uh, so Rūpāta Wairua, Ke Paduranga Hiwanui, you already heard about, the Aroa Flying Columns, Ngāti Nunu, and other allied Māori
0: uh,
1: uh, whittled down to Koti's support. And uh, so that's the Minister of Defence who ordered uh, Māori only to conduct the pursuit. And uh, I suspect the next slide is um, a slide against myself, which, uh, yes it is, the, that's my wife put that slide together for another presentation that I did, but was, uh, <laughs> that's myself on a trip into Mangapuhatu with my wife, and we were going in with this uh, tuhoi chap here who left Mangapuhatu 50 years before, and we came across this young bloke here who was just a monster, and he was about to head away, and uh, I stepped out and foolishly didn't put my boots on. If I had to put my boots on, I would have looked as muscly as they <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, about 40 of Te men were killed by the Kupapa at each of two battles in 1869 and 1870, and those battles really uh, destroyed his, his ability to resist. The left-hand one is um Tuporiri, which is just south of uh, uh Tudangi, and you can still go there and you can still see the entrenchments, and there's there's 37 people uh uh, buried, uh, who were killed at that battle, buried within the Redoubt still. Uh, the right hand image is not an image you would have seen before the fellow who drew that, a bloke by the name Rod Emerson who uh, is the main cartoonist for the um, New Zealand Herald and uh, the publishers rang me up with only a month or so to go to publication and said they needed an image for the front cover and um, uh, and th- they said what, what should we have in it and I said well you need to have a we need a scene of of a Pākehā soldier, Māori soldier or a Māori warrior fighting alongside him uh, against Māori and uh, so anyway the first effort that Emerson did was of a was so far in the distance you couldn't make out the figures at all so they Penguin wrote back and said no 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 we need tell them we need an in your face conflict scene so I said would you mind if I send that phrase to him and they said no go ahead so I did I sent that phrase up to him and he produced this image, and uh, and it's absolutely in your face. I'm not sure if you can see it from your distance, but this chap here is particularly in your face. And uh, and they were horrified at the uh, image, and refused. Uh, said no, we're going to run with the book with this, <laughs> with no image at all. But it's a pity because it was not a it was not a pleasant um, series of wars. It was in your face conflict. It was pretty ruthless and. Uh, um, I, I just put that in the PowerPoint simply because it brings home that war is, is <coughs> not fun and games. The last two Māori attacks on Te Kote and uh, Te des- uh, destroyed his support. Uh, at the Battle of, uh, well it wasn't a battle really, but it was an attack on a camp that he had at the foot of this ridge, the Waipawa River flows down like this out into the Rewakateri River. I'm standing on top of uh, the uh, uh, Mataku here uh, range, looking down to, to take that photo. Te was attacked in August. It was snowing. Uh, Gilbert Mayer, the bloke that I'd written a book about, had leapt a creek with another young Maori fellow, shot the, uh, the sanctuary who was trying to put a, a cap onto his rifle as he saw them leaping this creek uh, and then he grabbed Te without realising who he was as he was racing away with a carbine uh, and a um, and a, a cartridge belt and he had a, a, a little waist jacket and that was all, and mayor grabbed that, he managed to slip out of that, uh, slipped up, dropped his cartridge belt, uh, got across the river, the chap who lifted him onto the bank, uh, the action of him lifting him as they fired at Tukorti's back uh, meant that he lost the top of his head and the top of back in the river, but Tukorti was uninjured, got over to the other side, standing under that ridge, turned and in the snow, Absolutely naked, fired a shot back at them. That was the only shot he had because he lost his cartridge belt, and he disappeared. And no one knew where he was for the next three weeks. I believe he went over this range called the Puahuruhuru Range, which I've still got to go back to and walk over and just check out what I'm telling you. And uh, it drops into a river called the Ruakaturi. And up here, oh sorry, up here is Manga Uh They, after the attack, brought the prisoners out this way, around to, uh, around to the Ruakaturi. And then uh, George Priest and a number of te did a fantastic trip up and met a Nati Paro party that they knew was in the bush up on top of this range, which is the Langatata range, told them, we've attacked him down here two weeks ago, we think he's heading for Mangapuahatu. And uh, Nati Paro went through here, saw the smoke <coughs> of his fire from here, and attacked him at that location uh, up on the flanks of Mangapuahatu, uh, 3,600 feet. Um, and when you go there now, there's myself on, on this uh, location with a brother of a bloke who's sitting in the audience who <laughs> took the photo, and that's him there. And uh, he's a dentist up in Whangarei, this bloke, but I've been going in the Earth for about 50-odd years. And, uh, but they were attacked on, on this, which is a very, it just doesn't show out on that photo, but it's quite a sloping clearing in the bush. And uh, Te managed to get into this creek bed, up the creek bed, and got away. So in conclusion, Uh, The drivers of conflict for all Māori, uh, I I believe, were tēnō rangatiratanga. There was no common Māori position. The change to the meaning of Kūpapa ignores the widespread Māori commitments to treaty protections. Highly likely that most Māori were committed to the treaty and aligned on the government side. Uh, The traitor tag is misguided. The loyalty was to the hapū and the commitment was to to tēnō rangatiratanga. And the subsequent treaty breaches, and this is the tragedy of it all, was that the subsequent treaty breaches by the separate governments ruined Allied Maori aspirations um, and and it also in particular ruined their standing with those who they had opposed. I think that does Please.
0: Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Ron. Now we have some time for our questions and we
2: have a microphone too that we can hand around just to make sure we, everyone can hear. So uh, my name is Michael Hackwood, I'm a history teacher at Wellington High School. I think it's very also a quick comment and a quick question. I, I think it's very useful to have people like you critique um, history teachers because I think it's, um, it it highlights the significance of you know a really important part of the of New Zealand's history. Um, but I do think that since um, I'm certainly not solving no, no no course, oh, no no of course not no. But I, I think they need, we need to be challenged, and I think that's that's good that you're doing that. Um, but I also think that since um, the decision to have no prescribed content in the New New Zealand curriculum. Um, so the, the focus is on teaching students how to think like an historian. And there have been many schools who have dropped the commitment to the Tudor, Tudor Stewart's topic. So I think that that's a good a good sign. Um, and I think um, based on my f- forums with history teachers, um, there are many teachers, you'd be hard-pressed to find a school that didn't look at the New Zealand wars at all. Um, and another thing, a um, quick question, um, I've heard that Kūpapa meant to crouch down. I was wondering if you could comment on that and whether you've um, known anything about that definition.
1: Well, you know, I've, I've spoken to a number of uh, Māori elders over, over time about that and, and, uh, and, yeah, I mean, essentially what they say is that it would be, it's the equivalent connotation or sense, if you like, of, of lying flat on the ground or crouching on the ground, whatever it is, in a quarrel between two opposing parties. In other words, adopting a neutral position. Yeah.
0: Time for one more? Can
1: I, can I ask you a question? I, I'm very intrigued to ask the, uh, and you may wish to give the microphone back to the historian, uh, historical teacher if I can, um, just what, what um, can I ask you what materials are available or, or in terms of uh, to uh, history teachers and what uh, level of education is given to them nowadays as they're going through their own uh, educational system? Uh, in terms of the Musket Wars and their effect on Māori and in terms of the New Zealand wars.
2: You mean in terms of the, the education of the history teacher? Yes. I
1: mean, it, it, what I'm wondering is whether they've got the resources, whether they've got the materials yeah. to be able to teach courses.
2: Well, to become a history teacher, you need a history degree. So in, in the history, in the, the, teacher, the, um, the the potential teacher can then just choose whatever courses they want at the university. Right. Um, so uh, there is def- all the teacher trainees that I get, but often they don't have a um, strong focus in New Zealand history, mm-hmm. um, which is a concern, and I think th- there's a... Universities have a responsibility here, I think, to make um, certain courses compulsory. <laughs> um, uh, it's interesting that Paul Moon the other day was talking about um, the importance to make New Zealand history compulsory in schools. Um, but I, I think it also has to be, New Zealand history needs to be made compulsory part, as part of history degrees. Um, and that way, when people do, if uh, teachers do um, you know, end up in classrooms, they've got that strong content knowledge. Um, but I think that also, I mean, th- there are lots of resources uh, around, although they tend to be um, in the form of books. Uh, and it's kind of up to the teacher to kind of adapt ideas, which is why you're. Phase one, two, three, four is very useful because that provides the theoretical framework uh, that a teacher could use. Um, but I mean, like for example, in the um, in year thirteen, in all of the levels one to three, students need to be using sources primary and secondary um, uh, to develop students' historical thinking. And I think there are, especially online um, and through websites like this institutions. There are increasingly amount, uh, in a large amounts of sources that teachers can use. Right. Um, so I, I think it's getting better and better. I'm sorry to end the table.
1: <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Right.